You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Lorenzo Gomez, a three-time best-selling author, the founder of Geekdom Media, Texas's largest co-working space, and co-founder of the 8020 Foundation, a philanthropic organization dedicated to investing in the future of San Antonio. His new book, The Rack We Built, hit number one bestseller on Amazon and is catching a nice bit of buzz. It talks about the good, the bad, and the ugly of creating company culture and shares a couple of culture horror stories some of us can relate to that are still all too common in today's workplace. Lorenzo is an amazing resource on what it takes to build an award-winning company culture, especially during periods of growth, based on his experience working with Rackspace from a scrappy startup through to its IPO. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Lorenzo discuss the Rackspace story of building a winning team on an inspiring mission with each member being valued, they discuss practical strategies and tactics to help systemize a process of scaling workplace culture and what is the future of culture and current trends companies should be embracing. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today we have Lorenzo Gomez all the way from San Antonio, Texas. Lorenzo, nice to finally meet you. Great to meet you, Ron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was excited. You know, um, when I spoke in with Tucker Max from Scribe and, and there was an email exchange after we uh, had interviewed him, he was like, you know, you guys need to meet and you've got to have Lorenzo. And he, he and had they helped you with that book? The Yeah, I've, I've done, this. it's my third book. I've done all of them through Scribe. Yeah, great. I've really enjoyed that process. You? It's amazing. I, I tell people all the time, it's, you know, the, the company culture is the closest thing I've ever seen from a customer's lens to what I experienced at Rackspace. And it, and I tell them all the time, I said, man, you guys have something really special here. And from a customer experience standpoint, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, no, I would agree. They do a great job. But you look, you just mentioned Rackspace and that was the book that, that sparked my interest because it's interesting, right? Rackspace was, the, the, it was like the, from my, you know, I'm 42, but as I was building my first business in the private security world, I had always heard of Rackspace. It was like Rackspace, Rackspace. And then it and then it went quiet. I haven't heard of Rackspace. So maybe we don't need to answer that, but let's go back. What what tell us about your experience with Rackspace? Because it was known as the culture company, right? And maybe it still is. Um and 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 yeah, so, so what, tell you know, how did the how did your relationship start with Rackspace? Yeah, it's um, you know, I'm I uh it's one of my fondest memories and where I'm standing right now uh, in downtown San Antonio is a block away from where it was founded uh, in a building called the Weston Center. And, and uh, you know, little tech trivia, the first servers of YouTube also started in that data center, which, you know, I, I get a big kick out of that nerdy stuff. But basically, I was a 20 year old kid, uh, inner city kid, no college degree, no skills. And I worked, you know, for Gateway Computers, you know, as sort of a customer service guy. And, and one of the reps I worked with went to be a sale, one of the first like 10 sales reps at Rackspace. And he told me, he said, hey, I'm working at this crazy company downtown you've never heard of. Uh, it's awesome. We'll probably go out of business, you know, because it's so volatile, uh, but you should come work here. It's awesome. And so I, I have a pretty crazy high risk tolerance. And so I said, man, that sounds cool. Actually, he said, they buy us food like every other day, whatever you want. I said, what? That's crazy. So, I, so you know, it, it, it didn't take a lot to impress me. So I went and 
and you know, I didn't know what managed hosting was. And for 20 years, I tried to explain it to my mom, which I still can't. So I sort of ended up with just saying, mom, it's sort of the plumbing of the internet, you know, but what was so cool about hosting was we got to see so many awesome companies born, you know, we hosted Kazaa, we hosted YouTube, um, you know, 37 signals. I mean, there were just so many cool companies um, that we sort of saw we were enabling sort of the expansion of the universe of the internet. And as a young 20 year old kid, it was just mind blowing for me. And, and the culture piece I had never experienced before. So I sort of come at culture from this really, this sort of this traveler that walked into this company and experienced it from the inside. Wow. And so, so that was, and as a young 20 some year old, that was your first company culture experience. You didn't have a bad experience or did you, did you have a bad experience and was like, Oh, this is different. No, I, I worked, you know, I worked for the local grocery store here, which actually I would say had a pretty good culture, but retail is very different. And, and it was, you know, I worked there for a little while. It was actually great. I worked in retail selling computers. And that was interesting because gateway at the time, I always felt was always number two behind Dell. And it wasn't till I got to Rackspace and I heard, you know, one of the big things, the themes of my book is a quote from Graham, which is everybody wants to be a valued member of a winning team on an inspiring mission. And I realized, oh, I wasn't on the winning team at Gateway. And so I always felt like, you know, we were number two. And so when I got to Rackspace, that was the first place where I felt oh, not only are we the winning team, we're like the Navy SEALs, like we can't be messed with. And, uh, and you sort of walk around with your chest puffed out and just really, really bold and, and, and inspired. And so, so that's interesting. What, what, what would have caused you to not get there at, at, at Gateway? Like why, why couldn't they say, let's just run for number one? Or was, it, was that a leadership problem or, or, or what was the issue? Why didn't they? No, I think, I, think what it, I think what it was, was that, um, the, if I had to critique the culture of Gateway, I was in a retail store in San Antonio and they were based out of I or wherever. So I never, I can't tell you what our mission was. It never trickled down to me. I can't tell you what our values were. Um, and so I had no, I had no connection to our inspiring mission other than beat Dell, which is really not inspiring if you're 19, 20 years old. And so then it becomes, well, let me just try to get as much commissions as I can. Whereas as soon as I hit the floor at Rackspace, day one, they put us in orientation, right? They said, this is our mission, this is our value. And, and honestly, what I love about the Rackspace example is that it's the plumbing of the internet. Hosting is really unsexy. Nobody ever woke up in the morning and said, oh, can't wait to do some managed hosting today. And, and what they said, and it was really believable because they said, we're gonna be one of the world's greatest service companies like Nordstrom and Lexus in an industry that's famous for mistreating its customers. And it was so, so punk rock. I was like, yeah, sign me up. So this is really interesting because I think that that kind of um, exhibits the power of connection to purpose, mission, values, which which Gateway missed. And you still speak passionately and know it verbatim, <laughs> verbatim. about Rackspace. Like think of the power, that's 20 years ago, right? Ish. Yep, yep, 20 years ago. And I still remember it because I remember sitting there and I remember being in the back going like, yes, yes, I can, I can contribute. And also it's bigger than all of us, right? We're going to go do it. And, and also too, they did a great job of, I remember one time our CEO Lanham said, raise your hand if you've called Time Warner, uh, Time Warner Cable recently. And we all raised your hand. He said, now, now keep your hand up if you actually were able to speak to a human being. And not only did all the hands go down, we all started laughing. And he said, that's the problem is that that's how tech companies treat their customers. And we're going to pick up the phone every single time. And it was so like anti-establishment. I was like, yes, 
let's stick it to the man, you know, and, and I was, I was an account manager. So my job was picking up the phone. And so I instantly knew how to connect the mission with what I did every day. Um, and so it, it was, it was, it was just so clear to me as a young guy. Well, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, because I was going to ask during this process and, and you can see like when, when there's emotion, we don't forget. Right. And so yeah. I'm sure the hairs were sticking up on your neck and <laughs> we're ready to go. But, but what I was going to ask is, did they tell you how you're going to participate in impact? And the answer was yes. They basically said, here's time Warner and here's how we're going to fix it. And so you knew day one, pick up the phone is one step. That's how I'm going to participate in this whole ecosystem, Exactly. which I think a lot of companies, and I don't know if you would agree, Lorenzo, but sometimes there's this gap of we're going to do this, rah, 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 let's go. But okay, great. That's so big and audacious. How do I participate? And this was crystal clear. Crystal clear. But also, excuse me, they, you know, um, in the book, I talk a lot about core values and, and I know it's something that you talk about a lot in your podcast. And we had real core values with the exception of one. Um, they were real and they trained us right from day one on them and they talked about them all the time. And so for me, what I write about in the book is most people's core values are either stuck in the handbook and forgotten or they're on the conference room wall and everybody just passes by them. And I think that, you know, most companies need to get rid of them and have just one that works, right? One good core value is better than five fake ones. And we had, you know, five or six that were real. And so we use them every day. And I think one of the true tests of a core value is does it help the employee make a decision when the boss is not there? You should be able to look at your core values and go, well, no one's here. If I compare this situation with this, I'm just going to make, a, I'm going to call an audible. And, uh, and that's what I did. And I was managing you know, one of the stories that I tell in the book is um, I started at Rackspace August 6, 2001, the very next month, 9-11 happened. And so I watched 9-11 happen from my cubicle and I had a ton of customers on the East Coast. So I had customers going out of business left and right. And I used the core values to make autonomous decisions on letting people out of 36 month contracts that were paying us five grand a month without asking anyone because of our core values. And I knew I'm not going to get in trouble for this because... I, I just, values. they were the values. Yeah. I remember that part of the book, actually, that, that had to be a pretty lonely moment, right? It was, well, it was funny. It was lonely, even though we weren't phys like you were surrounded by the whole company, but you felt like you were alone fighting these. And, and actually it wasn't, it wasn't alone. It was just so sad to see people's livelihoods just disappear. And so they call you and they say, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm literally out of business from yesterday till today. And, but I think what was so in hindsight, so inspiring was how we treated them in their moment of crisis. And I think this is also a principle is nothing tests your culture like a crisis. It just, it just highlights whatever's already there. So many customers would tell their friends and family how amazing we were. And then they came back with their next company and then they would refer other people to us. And so it was sort of the long tail, but it really was, was painful to watch them but I think because we weren't looking at them as just sort of these, you know, revenue assets, we, we sort of, we sort of, uh, we, it was, a, it was a place where our mission really came to life and it was real. And as an employee, you go, we're not just talking trash here and giving lip service. We actually are doing this from the CEO all the way down. Mm, I love that. And so go, I'll go back to my, um, initial kind of question. Yeah, what yeah. happened to Raxby? Where is it today? Did, did it get sold? Is it still in business? And how come we're not hearing about the culture anymore? Objectively, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. So I, well, it's, it's hard. I can't speak to it today because I haven't been back in that building for gosh, almost 
seven or eight years. But but I'll I'll tell you, and I wrote towards the end of the book, I'll tell you where I think we we made some pivots that I that um, that I would warn and I would use them as lessons for other companies. Great. And so and so I I say that especially to leaders, you know, the caveat, the disclaimer is the leader sets the tone always. And the way that I describe it in the book is one of our core values, the most powerful core value we had was called fanatical support. And, and our chairman once said that those two words were worth a billion dollars worth of market value. Fanatical support was one of our biggest differentiators, but it was a core value. And so when we had our monthly company meetings with the entire executive team, with the whole company, if I took a transcript of, of that meeting and dumped it in a database, and then I did a query for the most used terms, fanatical support would have been number one. Customer service would have been number one. And then, and, and all throughout those days of scaling, we were bringing on hundred people a month that those phrases, people use those words. And so I just think your employees listen to what you say and what you say the most, well, they will determine and reverse engineer as the most important thing to the company. Well, after we went public, this other phrase started creeping in and that phrase was shareholder value. And all of a sudden, if I did the same data dump shareholder value, and I remember uh, one of my friends told me that the sales VP after we went public, did his big sales kickoff, and his first slide in the presentation was the share was the stock price, and so he opened his meeting with the with money, and I went here you go you've just sent the signal to all hundred reps or whatever that this is the most important thing for our company right now, and so I think that what happened is is that we didn't hold the line on that mission and values, and we started letting these other terms and look and I would say to any leader that goes public. It's hard because you have so much pressure from the street and, uh, and all these, and these little phrases. And this is why I think your, your culture and your values and your mission are like your immune system. There are all these, there are all these, you know, this bacteria that gets in there and, and some of them are very convincing. You know, the, the phrase I always love the most is people be like, oh, well, you know, we can't do that anymore. We need to be like a big boy company. And I thought to myself, you know, that's like someone going to Southwest. Airlines and say, hey, you know, this scene on the announcements, and the, you know, we can't do that. That's we need, to, we need to grow up. And I go, actually, that's what makes them special. That's what their differentiation is. You can't just take that away because you want to, you know, because, because, yeah, I don't know, Goldman Sachs doesn't like it. Or whatever. You went public. Yeah. Of yeah you went public. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think, and so today I'll, I'll tell you that, um, you know, after we went public, um, and at the, at the end of the book, I think it was around, 2012 or 13, I got called in to help with a culture project. Um, and so that was the last sort of milestone I saw. And I think what I saw was, I just saw a lot of um, trepidation from the leadership level. And so it was, it was, it was a lot of fear on, Hey, I don't want to do anything too radical. And I think that that's what was holding it back. And since then, they got bought by the Apollo Group. They went public again. So I'm not sure. I have met their new CEO, Kevin Jones. He's a really amazing guy. Um, and I, I was, I, you know, in the brief conversation I had, I think we were philosophically in alignment. But I think, you know, if, if Kevin was listening to your podcast, I would say he, you know, he and the team need to do what your podcast is is sort of on a mission to, which is execute the tactics, Right. You know, everyone wants the same strategy of great culture, but you need to execute the tactics of how you bring it to life. Well, yeah, because what happens as you grow is there's this delta, this gap between the vision and the front line. Right. Mm -hmm. It just because what happens then is you grow to regular corporation. It's okay now uh, senior management, tell middle management to tell that layer of management to tell the front lines. And that's where things start to die. Right. 
Totally, totally. And and I think that one of the things that I uh, I propose in the book too is, and we did a good job of this, and I think more companies need to be more overt about it, is, uh, and to borrow a term from Tucker Max, I think people need culture scribes, not necessarily in a formal role, but who is harvesting the stories that bring, that bring the core values and the mission to life, because the stories are what live on, and the stories are how the frontline guy trains the new frontline guy or gal, right? When, the, when there's no one there, they're going to train them on the floor, and they're going to say, hey, you see that person over there? Let me tell you what they did. They're famous in this company for story X, Y, and Z. And I think that we have to harvest the stories because there are, and, and, and I always say, you know, core values always have a dark side. People can use values the wrong way. And so you have to say, this is a good story of when it's done well. And this is a bad story of when you're using it as an accomplice for bad behavior. But I think the story harvesting is how it propagates when you get big. And then the, tra- the traditions, the things that you celebrate are really stories. And that is what, how you help sort of uh, propagate the mission, you know, and get it really down in, in the lower levels. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you're spot on, but I am, I'm, I'm still thinking about Raxbay because, because, you know, um, I, I've got a great relationship with uh, Sherry Conway at uh, Southwest Airlines. And she said one time, you know, because through leadership change, the question is, how is the culture, you know, how's that going to impact the culture? And, and I think for companies that get it right, and I think she said this one time, that only when your culture has transcended from leader to, you know, I'm going to call it internal stakeholders, employees, whatever you want to call them, do you then protect the organization from the new leader or these new things that you're talking about? Like, was it not strong enough that, that people raise a flag and say, whoa, 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 what, what, we're starting with the stock price. What are we doing here? What's, what's happening? Or did people see that and leave? Like, did you see a shift or was it strong enough that people defended the culture? I'm curious. Yeah. I just think that, uh, God, it's such a great question, Ron. I don't think, I think that the ultimate cancer is leadership. I think that it's the one obstacle that you can't overcome because, you know, um, I, I think that especially at the highest level, most CEOs have their own posse they want to bring in. And so if you if you come in as the CEO um, and, 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 and actually we saw this during Rackspace, right, where I was part of the gateway posse. I came in with like 10 other gateway dudes. And then there were like 15 Dell guys that came in and there was the EDS crew, right? And so, and I think that a CEO takes over and they bring in their posse. And if the CEO is the, the antithesis to your values, their entire posse is going to be the antithesis to your values. And so all of a sudden now their tentacles are reaching deep within the organization. And all of a sudden now they're the ones saying, uh, no, you're wrong. This is how we're going to do it. And I think that, you know, they have the power at the highest level. This is why it's so critical in, in one sentence, a leader can rebrand someone and say, you know what, that Lorenzo, this is how it happened in Rackspace. They would say, oh, Lorenzo, he's one of those old school rackers that doesn't like change. And pow, in a meeting, I wasn't even in to defend myself. I just got rebranded 10 levels above my head. And so I think that even if you have the entire sub-organization, right, completely immune and, and firing, if you have cracks at leadership level, it, it, it just cascades all the way down. Absolutely. I think that makes sense. But I, I'm, I'm also curious, <clears throat> at this point, did Rackspace systemize it? Or was it just this free-falling, natural, let's go, stories are no. going, but, but was it systemized? Because yeah. I, I, as you're talking, I'm like, well, if it's systemized, 
I agree with your point, but there should be some protection. If so, if the new leader comes in and they know that that's the onboarding process, you, you know, you as the leader, as a KPI, need to tell stories about our culture. Like if you really hold them to account, were they that purposeful, intentional, or was it still just a little kind of, you know, natural? Yeah. So, well, first off, Rackspace did an amazing job of systematizing the culture. And I, I liken it to um, the University of Texas A&M has this amazing thing called fish camp. And so before you, when you, when you get accepted, you go to this two, three day, uh, uh, basically it's like an indoctrination conference. And so they teach you all of the, the traditions and rules. And there's something called cheer camp where when you're at the stadium at a football game, you, and, it, and it's a big deal apparently. And, and so most companies, you know, that I've studied do this well, Zappos does it great. When you get there, they sort of have an orientation. And that's, and that was, I think what I recommend to most companies is as soon as the employee gets there, we had something called rookie O, which was a whole week. And you were not exempt, no matter how high in the level where you were. Like Zappos. Like Zappos. And so you had to go in and they would cover the mission, the core values, they would come in. And so everyone came out of there charged up from there, you know, our open book meetings, which were also a tradition where the leaders got to really display and where you got to measure them on what we're what we're doing and how we're doing. But we also had these traditions that pointed back to the values. And so in fanatical sport, and, and if 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 anyone wants to look up the cover of my book, it's this crazy dude in a straitjacket. And the picture comes from the highest award tradition we had at Rackspace was called the fanatical straitjacket. And once a quarter, they would put that jacket on the Rackspace employee that had exhibited fanatical support the most. And it was a huge deal. The whole company would be there. The executives wanted the would be jacket. there. You wanted the jacket. 20 years later, I am still a bitter, angry man that I never wanted. And I have a lot of ones that I had to go to therapy for. But it was such a big deal. And But that tradition was real. And as you stood there in the jacket, you felt like a valued member of the winning team on an inspiring mission. There was no doubt. I love that you, and I, you just mentioned again, and, and I love that you, you, you said the winning team. I, I would agree. I, 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 you know, I always say to folks, look, the companies that I'm leading, I want to be companies that are tough to, you know, teams. I always go back to teams, but companies, yeah. teams, tough to get on, high standards, you know, tough to play on. Uh, but it, it, if it's all working out, you're going to be, it's going to be a great ride. And you're going to enjoy this more than any other team environment you've ever had. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I don't think anyone wants to get up in the morning, sign up for 40 hours for the losing team. Nobody willingly does that unless you really have to. People want to be a part of the winning team. And, and I think one of the reasons I love marketing so much is that the whole, it's like a game to me, which is how do I carve out a niche, even if it's a tiny little category where I can be number one in it. And, and, and what we did at Rackspace was that we said, Hey, in managed hosting, the managed part is where we're going to succeed because we're going to help people. And then, and then as soon as we differentiated, all our competitors said, we do that too. Then fanatical support was born. And we said, yeah, but we're the number one in actually service. And that's where we just beat people up. They just couldn't compete with us. And, and I'll tell you, the downside of that was we relied too much. And this is why I say every core value has a dark side. We allowed these heroics to become the most important thing. And we should have been automating so that people didn't have to do these Herculean things every time. And that's where we sort of went awry on that core value, but it is what differentiated us to be the winning team. And, and I, and look, I, going back to your original question on how does a company like Rackspace go astray? Well, one of the things that I think contributes to it is we were a service company 
that had technical products. And I think that we hired leaders later where that was beneath them. No, 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 no. It's way sexier for me to go to a dinner party and say, I work for a cloud computing company than a customer service company. And so you had these people starting to shift the mission. They say, you know what? We need to get out of this service thing and we need to really put on this display that we do big data, insert buzzword. And I went, actually, that's, but that's not why people come to us. They come to us because Lorenzo Gomez, account manager, answers the phone every time, right? That's the differentiation that we have. And so I think that, but at the highest levels, the, the, the leverage they have is so much greater than, than the worker bees that you can tweak it one degree to, and you've gone severely off course. Right, right. It's that power of language, right? And it's influence. the power of language. Words yeah. matter. Words matter. Big time, big time. That's very interesting. So what made you want to tell the story? Was it just, this was such, so impactful. I'm so passionate. I need to get it out there to, to help others build and, and look out for things that maybe will send them in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think, um, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, my, my best friend who I reference in the book is named, a guy named Dax Moreno. And we sort of came up at the same time. We have very similar stories. And so we would sit there as young men, sort of pontificating, like, this is so cool. Like, what, why, is it, why is it this way? And we, we were always students of culture because we knew we were experiencing something really special. And, um, and then later on, I got to go visit Zappos with uh, our chairman, Graham, and, and a small team. And so then I started studying other companies that did it. And I said, hey, this is... And, and after IPO, it sort of became my mission to answer this question, which is, can you scale culture to the very highest levels? Can it be done when you have headwinds like Wall Street? You know, can it be done? And, and I'm convinced the answer is yes, it's just super freaking hard. And, uh, and there's just things you have to put in place to do it. And so when I, I always wanted to write a book about the things that we experienced because they were so special, but several years having left Rackspace, starting another company, I deployed those tools and they worked. And I went, you got to share them. You got to pay it forward. And so I wanted to pay forward the things that I knew worked. And also I wanted to sort of give a, a disclaimer to say, hey, avoid these pitfalls, these booby traps, because, you know, like I'll give you uh, my favorite one from the book is what I call the last core value. And the last core value is letting people leave with dignity when I left Rackspace, it became so, I believe it was very toxic where if someone you didn't like left, you treated them like a criminal. If someone that was an A player left, you felt so betrayed and bitter and angry that you, to you totally ghosted them. And people want to hear three things. No, it doesn't matter. They want to hear, I'm sorry you're leaving, your contribution mattered, and thanks for the time you gave us. And I tell a, I tell a story about a guy who got an $800,000 job offer for a big competitor of ours. And he was gonna go steal all of our sales guys. And the only reason he didn't was because I called our chairman who called the CEO and said, hey, you need to make up with this guy. And he sent him this beautiful letter and he gave him the three things. And, and he didn't know he was doing it, but all of a sudden my friend said, you know what, I'm not gonna take that offer. And it's because they finally let him leave with dignity. And I think so many companies don't do that. Um, and so you have an army of detractors out there talking trash about your company and how, how much you stink. You know, I, I, I completely agree. And it's funny, I have these debates all the time with, with folks because, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for 21 years now and I've never, I know this isn't typical practice, but I've never had a file on anyone. I've never given someone a slip and if no one's ever taken me to the labor standards or their lawyer because I've treated them like a human being and had right. a compassionate empathetic conversation about maybe misalignment 
It's never a pull the rug out from under you. You don't know what's happening. It's your choice. If you, if, if you want to be successful here and we've also, we talked about this in the book, we had people leave the company that come back and we, we encourage totally. that. And people used to question me and say, how could you Lorenzo left and you're going to let him walk back. In? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes that, that it's the greatest, it's the greatest adventure there is. And, and I think it's just, you know, when you watch someone uh, have the security guard come out just to just to sort of hover over them, it's so dehumanizing. And it's and it's just and and but 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 what's even worse is that every other employee is watching and they're saying, ah, that's how they're going to treat me when it comes my time. That's and right. all of a sudden, you've put them on the other side of the table from you, which is, well, I got to get mine, and and I got to get it while the getting's good because at some point they're going to pull the rug and they're going to treat me like a criminal. That's right, especially this pull the rug and and and, and I you know we I do a lot of culture talks and talk about the biggest missed opportunity in organizations is the unhiring process post unhiring. So what I mean by that is okay, things didn't work out with you and I, and then and then I used to do this the big famous memo, you know Lorenzo has decided to move on and we wish him luck. And it's right. the worst, right? And I was like, whoa, 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 what happened? Versus, yeah. hey, let's have an open discussion about what happened. Where was the misalignment? Especially if this person was let go. How do we protect ourselves? What do we learn from this? You, you, you know, I think as leaders, we have to use these moments to draw the team closer together versus this elephant in the room, eggshells. What happened? Don't talk about it. Here's what I think. What's your story? Completely. And, and I'll tell you a story. When I left, uh, I was probably one of, I was probably one of the first 20 old school rackers that left and it caused a lot of consternation in the organization. And I remember someone telling me that in an open book, the CEO at the time, he, he didn't know how to handle it. And so he said, you know, the, you know these guys are leaving, it's, it's unfortunate because they're going from Rackspace. I went, I went from Rackspace to a tiny startup and he was like, they should be going up to Google. And, and I just went, that's not your story, Mr. CEO. You went from a big company to a tiny company called Rackspace that no one ever heard of, but you don't know how to handle it because you feel betrayed. You feel like, how could these guys leave us? And to your point, all the, all you had to say was guys, we're struggling to keep all time employees and we need to fix it. And we're open to suggestions and we need to do a better job. Yada, yada, yada. That transparency just makes people go, Hey, yeah. Okay, cool. We don't want to lose more. Let's talk about it. Versus because people can sense the bitterness and the passive aggressiveness. And, uh, but, but I will say, I think it's natural. So anybody listening that's done it, I've done it. It's a human, it's, I think it's a reactive, you know, uh, emotional expression that everyone has. But I think as leaders, we have to fight it extra hard because it really, it can, it can be one of those things where you do everything else right. And this is like carbon monoxide. It's odorless and tasteless. And it just starts poisoning you before you know it's even there. Well, you know, it's funny. I, um, I'm curious what your thought on, on this. Cause I, I, the other side of that is I've in some cases been caught, you know, believe in my own press on the company culture we've created. And so what happens there is I'm like, wow, this is the, this is a great team, great culture, great purpose, great mission. We're, we're winning the game, all the things we're talking about today. And then someone, uh, will, will you know, we'll, We'll put up for a, a new position. We'll have a conversation with someone who won't take the job based on whatever reason. And then I get to storytelling or I used to, and then, and then I get really fussed. I'm like, Whoa, how, how, what's wrong with them? Why wouldn't they, how come they can't see what I see? And then I, that used to keep me up at night. And then I kind of transitioned to the culture did its job. They just weren't aligned there, and that's okay. Right. Thoughts that's on right. that. Yeah. Well, I think, um, 
I think also as you grow, you just sort of realize that people are at different phases in their career and, and things that they want. I, I'll, I'll give you two stories. One of them is there was an engineer that I worked with who was a Linux, I mean, just genius. And, um, and you know, he sort of reached his ceiling and I wanted him to go into management because that was the only way to make more money. And he was just like, hey, man, I, 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 I see what you do with people and I hate it. <laughs> like, I, I just want to sit here. And, I, and, and part of me was always like, bro, like, come on, you know, you have so much potential. And I just realized, hey, man, you know, that guy is still there and he's been Love serving customers. He loves it. And also our customers have got the benefit of his loving care for like 15 years straight. And, and I just have to say, there's nothing wrong with that. He's on a different path than me. I, you know, I, I will say too, that I do think that it gets, especially in a fast growing company, you know, um, it is really hard because as an employee, you're sort of your own advocate. I remember I got offered two directorships at the same time. And one of them, it's funny, we're talking about culture. One of them was a brand new, a brand new position. It was like called the culture czar. And, um, and then one of them was a director in project management. And I remember a piece of advice that a friend of mine had got from a Rackspace leader. And this, and this guy had said, hey, look, you need to be worried not about what you're gonna make this year or next year, but what you're gonna make in 10 years. And the only way to do that is through skills acquisition. You need to be acquiring all kinds of new skills. And so I looked at these two positions and I said, culture czar sounds real cool and fun and sexy. And I bet I get to walk around a lot. And then I went project management, Lean Six Sigma, you know, Gantt chart, like real stuff I don't know, Kaizen. And so I picked the project management role. And I also said, you know, this role is unproven. I don't know how it's measured. And if we have a downturn, it'll be the first one that gets taken out. Right. And so I, I picked the project management one, less sexy. I still use those skills today. And sure enough, that role got eliminated. And, right. and so, but when you're, when you're growing, no, there's no guide to tell you these things other than, hey, we, you know, and, and, and I think this is what's so exciting about it is it's sort of pick your own adventure. Um, yeah. Well, I was going to say, but in these two stories, this, this individual from Rackspace who wanted to stay in that lane and your own story, this reminds me of, um, we had uh, a gal named Amy HR on the podcast um, a few episodes ago. And this was a huge aha moment for me. It was saying, we need to stop thinking about things in terms of career path and, and look at things as success path, success to the individual. Because what you just talked about were two different success paths for two different reasons totally. versus the old, okay, I'm here and now I'm going to be a vice president for this region that I'm going to, that's dead, you know? And, and, and so what it means for us as leaders, when I heard that was, wow, we need to double down on understanding not projecting what we want that person to do, but understanding what success, because it might be as simple as, oh, Vita Living just expanded to, to Peru. I always want to live there. I, that's success to me. I'd love to work from that office. Boom, you're gone. You know, I, I, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, oh, I, have, <laughs> I have strong thoughts. And I'll tell you, the epiphany came to me when I had my first really, really young employee work for me. Um, and they came to me one day and they said, hey, I've been in this account manager role for six months and I've mastered it. And I was like, jigga what? I was like, bro, you've only mastered the tasks. You have not, you only time gives you mastery. And, and what I realized was he was straight out of college. And, and I believe that the education system is a linear up into the right progression. And your career is not linear. The career is almost like Odysseus in the Odyssey. You might get shipwrecked somewhere, somewhere for about five years, right? And when, I, when you look at anyone's career, it's all over the place. Whereas I think most people expect a linear up into the right progression. And sometimes, you know, I, I remember when I started, I was, I was uh, you know, account manager. 
And then I, I stayed at Cambridge for five years. I went to the UK, but it was in the same role, but I just wanted international experience. And then I went a little bit up and then I got to the highest level. And then I went down to a startup. So I took a $50,000 pay cut because I was hoping that, you know, it would, it would be explosive growth again. And then I went back up and then, and so this notion that people are on these linear progressions, I think is one of the, one of the biggest distractions uh, for companies and to say, it's actually this crazy odyssey. And, um, and if you're not up into the right, there's nothing wrong with that. Some people are and some people aren't. Yeah, I, I agree. It's very interesting. And I think both sides need to kind of lean into that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just think it, the, the, the thing that I thought about when she mentioned that was, wow, we really need to spend more time on relationships and understanding that about the individual and what is important to not just them in, in, you know, in, in, in them at work, but them as an individual, because that's the big change. If you think of HR, it's now right. called whole HR. It's not just Lorenzo at work. It's Lorenzo <laughs> and his or her family and, and right. what's important to them. I mean, we really, especially the pandemic has blurred the lines between work and, and, and home. Yeah. I remember when I, after I'd left, I spoke to a woman um, and uh, she was complaining about her boss. And I said, Hey, yeah, I said, I, I said, we're, we're good enough friends where I can tell you this. I said, you haven't la- liked your last five bosses and you're not going to like your next two. You need to be an entrepreneur. You need to, you need to quit and start your own company. I said, but I know what you're thinking. Um, you're thinking you're going to quit. You're going to forego your salary and benefits. You're going to start this company and it's going to go belly up and you're going to become homeless. And she started crying. She said, I just had a baby. I can't, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I don't want to. And I said, let me tell you a story. I left Rackspace. I went to a startup. It totally bombed and failed. And I'm not homeless. And now she has this amazing events company. And, but, but that was her progression, but she had to go down to go up. Right. Mm -hmm. She had to make, and it wasn't, it wasn't just, Hey, you should just keep going until you're the double vice president of intergalactic events at Rackspace. No, you need to go jettison. And I think that, you know, we need to take more time to your point to understand people's individual journeys and adventures to say, well, what's next for you? Yeah. So what else, what, you know, what's, what is a culture of the future? Look at what have you been talking about? The, the, the forward thinking stuff, the things that, you know, obviously there's, um, you know, in- inclusivity and diversity being a huge topic. What else are you seeing that it's like, okay, this is the next thing that w- this is the future of, of culture. Wow. I have ne- I have not been asked that question. I think, um, I think that the future of culture is going to be, uh, well, I, I, so a couple trends, I think the first one is, is that I grew up in the tech space. And what I've realized is that uh, my, and, and I saw people make fortunes, in tech. And what I've come to realize is that I, I get more excited about small to medium sized businesses because it's actually the majority of our, our economy. And so I do think that the future is telling a new narrative about what it means to be successful in the business world. And I think that, that especially in the States, we do a really terrible job. I do think that we have to rebrand capitalism uh, because capitalism has been hijacked and it and it's it's it now just means you're a terrible greedy exploiter of people and so you compare everyone with whoever walmart or whoever insert your where i go no 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 the the, the two women that own my local coffee shop uh, their profits go to dance recital lessons for their kids 
It's not to their second beach house, right? It's for their mortgage and for their bills and for their employees. That they're but they're capitalists, That's and right. we don't re- and we don't talk about people like that. So I actually think the future of culture is rebranding what it means. And because I all, I sit on the board of a for profit and a nonprofit, I see people going to the nonprofit world because they think that it's without exploitation. And I go, I actually I actually strongly believe that the greatest philanthropy is in capitalism because I think the greatest gift you can give someone is a recurring paycheck is a is a is a is a meaningful job a good job right not a you know where we where we you know pay you nothing but but i think it's the greatest philanthropy that i've seen and so i i think a lot of the future is around getting people fired up again about starting small businesses and using the things that we're talking about on this podcast so because because it was it's magical if you see a company of 10 right that are profitable that love it that are on an inspiring mission and that's what they do for the next couple of decades. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think we need to celebrate. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and, I, and, and, you know, you said something earlier, which I think a lot of companies forget as they, as they, as they start to grow, which is, um, you know, that, that, that you can process, build process around culture and you should be intentional about that. Otherwise it's, it, everything's default or design, right? And so if you Absolutely. design your culture, like you design your customer experience, like you design your blah, 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 then you need to spend, spend the same amount of effort and detail. It should be part of your quarterly planning and really build that out. Because, you know, I'm sure you've seen this too, but as, as people go from the small business, and I was, I was talking to this on an ADP podcast the other day, is this a big, you know, it's a, it's a big moment for someone that says, oh my goodness. So it was you and I, Lorenzo, it was so fun and easy. Now there's 10 people and we haven't designed any culture. We've moved to default. default. We have competing cultures here. We've not really purposely intentionally built our values out and share them. So, so now they're like, Oh my God, now managing people's, you know, hell for me, it should, we should go back. Let's go back to you and I. And that seems to be a big moment that doesn't allow someone to build a business. Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm in a co-working space now, so I'm surrounded by, you know, entrepreneurs chasing their dreams. And, and I think that the, the, the successful ones, you know, are intentional about it in the front end. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that, as I've studied companies about it, it's hard because there are a bunch of tactical things, but the initial big step is this philosophical buy-in, right? And, and I, I'm actually working with a company right now where, um, you know, they it, it, it was a family-owned business and there's a new CEO took it over, you know, the, the, the patriarch passed away. And I'm like, hey, what you do is very similar to Rackspace. It's boring. And, but but what your mission is, is inspiring. You know, they're, it, it's, a, it's a chemical company. I was like, you, your customers are doing crazy awesome stuff and you're enabling this amazing innovation. That's the mission. But it's hard because the CEO goes, yeah. But I go, well, how do you take that out there? That's what you have to do. It, right. and, and, it, and it's and it, so you first have to have philosophical alignment on taking this mission and saying, you know what? I'm gonna be bold enough to say, we're awesome. And this is what we're doing. And then let's implement a lot of the tactics and strategies mm-hmm. on actually growing it out. But I found that a lot of them get to it and some of them get very nervous about actually waving the flag and saying, we're going to be in the best in the world of this. It's easy for the sales guys because that's how they close deals. Mm-hmm. But, but, but to your point, it's, it does start with the leader, right? And, it does uh, start with the leader. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they, they set the tone. Lorenzo, anything else we haven't talked about today that you, you think would be valuable for our listeners? I, well, I'll tell you, um, the whole book is the whole book 
is sort of around this phrase that I learned from Graham, which is everyone wants to be a valued member on a winning team, on an inspiring mission. And I think that uh, if, that if your listeners think about the, the companies they admire, if you put them all through that filter, it matches up every single time. 100%. And, I, and I think that it's, if you, if you write it on your wall and meditate on it, I think that it's a great starting place because when I saw it, I thought it's so true. And it's such a game changing idea. And I know it's awesome because I didn't come up with it. And so I would say, I would submit that uh, anybody that, that wants to start the journey on it can start there and, and, and work, work forward. I love that because it's high level. It's inspirational. It's a nice check and balance because you might have two out of three, but you need three out of three. Exactly. Uh, I would agree. That's, that's exactly right. That's yeah. Exactly right. Lorenzo, it's been wonderful, my friend, having you on today. I really appreciate it. Obviously, we're lighting up as we're having this discussion. Uh, so, so thanks for stopping in on the show. It's my pleasure, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. For more information about Lorenzo or his books, please go to LorenzoGomez.com or his Amazon page. For more information about the Scaling Culture podcast or our upcoming book and masterclass, Scaling Culture, go to ConnellyOwens.com. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.